have your seats. This morning's reading comes from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea, because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world, for not even his brothers believe in him. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no. On the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. When the, when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, my teaching is in mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teacher is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one sent him is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Who? You have a demon. The crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? I performed one work. And you all are all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses had given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at him because I am made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to the righteous judgment. This is the word of the Lord.
There we go. All right. So, uh, yeah, let me start that over again. Happy, for, again, like last week, for the recording's sake, let's edit out that beginning. All right, so uh, happy Mother's Day to all of you uh, mothers, and, and uh, Mother's Day is just a special time, um, and, and in fact, this week, my wife and I have been reflecting on, um, uh, of, 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 uh, it was almost a year ago um, today that, that we became foster parents. It was May 31st of, of last year, we, we became uh, uh, foster parents, and in fact, uh, Emmanuel, the little foster baby that came to live with us, today is his birthday of all days, yeah, on, on, on Mother's Day, but, but um, we, we've been kind of reflecting and thinking about, uh, you know, kind of, kind of what does it mean to be, be parents and how motherhood is this unique and special role that, um, that God calls women to, and, and, um, and, and I was thinking about one of the things that I'm so thankful for and uh, one of the things that just has, has made, and I think I can speak for both of us, but I know for my wife as a mother and me as a father, it's made it easy for us to kind of ease into this role as being a part of Tri-Cities Church and just being able to witness so many mothers here and watch you, uh, watch you do it so artfully and gracefully. Uh, and so knowing that there were a lot of mothers that would surround us and encourage us and be with us has made that a, a, um, a, 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 a pleasant experience and one that we were able to ease into. Um, and so I, I just want to thank all you mothers for the work that you do and for the love that you show your children. So uh, let me, let's, let's let some fellas in here make some noise for the mothers. <laughs> Can we do that? Uh, uh, uh. All right, let's make some noise for the mothers. Oh, man. Come on, guys. Let's do that one more time. Come on, guys. Let's make some noise for the mothers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I was sharing this morning with the team back there, uh, always on these kinds of days, I'm, I'm reminded. There's a scripture in Psalm 139 that's very encouraging for me, but hopefully it'll encourage you as well this morning in Psalm 139, verse 13. Listen to what it says. This is David kind of reflecting. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Some versions say knit me together in my mother's womb. And it's this idea of that God, before we were ever born, had an idea of what we would look like and the skills and gifts that, that we would have. And he, he knit us together kind of as, as one knits a sweater um, or, or makes some piece of art. Right? He, he knit us together artfully while we were in our mother's womb. But the, the encouraging thing about that scripture, at least, at least for me, and I want it to be encouraging for you this morning, is that this isn't, um, this isn't some, some artist that's dreaming up a piece of, piece of art. Right? This is the creator of the universe, the one that knew the end from the beginning, the one who knew your story before it ever came into being, the one who created you but knew everything that you would experience. And so uh, for, for the mothers in the house, God knew everything that you experience along the journey of motherhood. He knew all the obstacles, hindrances, all the problems and heartaches and pains and challenges. He knew all of that, right? And then, and then Psalm says he, he knit you together in your mother's womb with all of that knowledge being present with him, knowing everything that you would have to face. And, and our God he has given you everything that you would need to be a fantastic mother. And so in times of inadequacy, turn to God and say, he knit me together in my mother's womb. He knew what I would face. In times where you might feel insufficient, he knit you together in your mother's womb. And he knew everything that you would face, and he equipped you for it. And so um, 
this Mother's Day, let's, um, let's reflect on that God and trust in that God who is able to do that great work of art that you are. Amen? Well, let's pray for the mothers, and then we'll get into our message for this morning. God, we give you thanks this morning that you have given us this uh, time and space to come together in this place and to uh, sing songs of praise to you, the God who uh, created us. And God, we're thankful for this scripture, Psalm 139, that says that while we were in our mother's womb, that you knit us together, that you knew all the things that we would face in life, and you prepared and equipped us for them. And so, God, for these mothers, God, we are thankful this morning um, that you have given them your spirit that lives within them, that lives through them, that equips them for all the unique challenges and obstacles and hardships and heartaches that are faced along the way. And God, we pray a special prayer of peace and comfort. We also pray a special prayer of confidence, the kind of confidence that can only be found in you, that they will find themselves trusting you in times of hardship and in times of ease, and trusting you with the children that they raise. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in John chapter 7 this morning uh, as we continue in our series. If you're here with us uh, for the first time, we have been in John since the beginning of the year, and we will be in John till the end of the year. We're, this week we're in uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 24. Next week we will be picking up in verse 25, and we'll be going to the end of this chapter to verse 52, actually. We're going to, uh, verse 53 it's kind of a, um, it's, the, it's the end of the chapter, but we're going to verse 52, uh, right, just short of the end of the chapter. So if you've been journeying along with us and maybe even reading during the week, you can read in preparation for next week, John chapter 7, verse 25 through 52. Uh, last week's message, and, and, and we talked about this a little bit, Jamie and I, this, this past week, last week's message was particularly challenging. And it's one that I think we need to hear, we all need to hear and I know I need to hear over and over and over again. It's one that needs to be playing on repeat in my own life um, because I grew up with this idea of God, this uh, theology, if you will, that tended to treat God as though the sum of God's mission, right, was to make moral people, right, that morality was the sum of God's mission. And let me say it this way, um, that God, God's desire in Jesus Christ was um, primarily so that we would live a particular kind of life shaped by morals, right? And so I, I grew up with the idea that that was the sum of God's mission, that God only wanted us to live morally. He didn't want us to cuss. He didn't want us to... Uh, <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, he don't want us to cuss and do other things that, that, the, that we've been taught uh, are, not, um, are not becoming of one who follows Jesus Christ, right? Cuss and drink. Uh, uh, pastor, growing up, you say, I think he said, um, um, cuss, cuss and chew and date girls who do. He, God doesn't want us to cuss and chew and date girls who do. 
I guess that one still works, right? Is it still a little funny? Um, but, but it was this idea that the sum of God's mission more, was morality. But when we read the scriptures, we see that that God is way too domesticated to be the God of scripture, right? That the God of scripture that we read about in scripture, yeah, he's concerned with morality, right? He wants us to live a certain kind of way, and he teaches us there's a certain way that we are created to live, but that's not the sum of God's mission, right? When we read in scriptures, we see that God is creative. God is innovative. God is bold. God is healing. God is restorative. God is making all things new. And so to reduce that God to a God that simply wants us to uh, abide by a few simple morals, and then we're okay with that God, and in his eyes, that's just not true, right? That's not the God of creation. So last week, as we got into the scriptures, I couldn't help but clearly see how Jesus was challenging them to believe in a God who wanted to do so much more in this world than simply make moral people, right? So, um, so there's this tendency, and this is in my own life, uh, and I'm speaking from experience, but I'm also speaking through the experience of the church, right? There's this tendency in my life to feel like I've arrived at a certain point, right? I've, I've worked some bad habits out of my life. I've conquered some things that I know I shouldn't be doing, saying, thinking, and now I'm good and I have right standing with God because I've, I've gotten myself together, right? I've cleaned myself up, and now I'm just waiting for heaven, right? I've gotten myself together because I got some place to go, and I'm just waiting for God to come back and take me there, and that's just not the God of creation, right? The God of creation is on mission um, in this world. He's making things new in this world. He has a mission and a vision for our community that is far more than we could ever dream or imagine. And if we sit back and think, um, if we sit back and think that that God only wants to make us moral beings, then we're going to miss out on what God wants to do in our lives. And so last week we saw that God calls us into uncomfortable places sometimes, but ultimately it's for our uh, unending joy in, in him. So he calls us into uncomfortable places, and it's for his mission, which leads to our unending Joy. Now, Jesus said that last week, and there were some people that, um, that walked away from him. There were some disciples that just couldn't handle that message. And so they turned, and, and they left him. But where we pick up this week in John chapter 7, Jesus is still hanging out in Galilee because the people in Galilee at least didn't want to kill him. Down in Judea, last time he was down there, the people were trying to take his life because of the things he was doing and the things that he was teaching. But in Galilee, and, and I think the easiest way, I heard somebody say, the difference between Galilee and Judea, Judea is almost like the difference between New York and Texas, right? Um, the, Galilee is this kind of northern area along the Mediterranean Sea, um, and, and, uh, and it's, it's up there in the north, but it's much more diverse, much more um, progressive, and there's these pockets of concentrated Judaism where Jews are living, but they're surrounded by these communities that have been influenced by all kinds of different gods, and so they're, um, they're much less... Um, they're much less concerned about the rules and following a certain kind of rigid structure, right? Because there's a little bit of everything going on in Galilee. So the Bible says Jesus was still hanging out in Galilee because if he went south to Judea, they were trying to, they were trying to take his life. 
right? In fact, if you pick up there uh, in, in verse 7, um, uh, ver- uh, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. But his brothers, though, uh, uh, if you read a little bit further, his brothers were trying to get him to go to Judea. Um, they, they, in fact, they were encouraging him to take his show on the road. They were seeing all the things that he was doing, all the miracles he was performing. They were seeing the crowds flock to him, and they thought this will be a good time for Jesus to take this show on the road. In fact, I don't think his brothers, and, uh, and I like to read a little bit of maliciousness into them, and I could be reading that into their story, but his brothers were not yet believers. And so I think they knew that the people in Judea wanted to kill him. So they weren't just like, show yourself to the world, right? They were setting him up for failure. If you look in verse 2, look at what it says. It says, now the feast of the um, feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. And booths is, um, it's a weird, I, the version Kim read said uh, shelters, the feast of shelters. Some says tabernacles, you'll read that sometimes. Some says booths, it's a difficult word to translate, but ultimately it's almost like these makeshift um, um, booths that they would make or makeshift shelters, maybe even a better word, that, that they would make during this festival that lasted a week, and they would take branches and palm trees, and so they would make themselves kind of like tents, uh, temporary tents that they, would, that they would live in as a way of celebrating and remembering God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness when he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And so that was a huge part of the Jewish narrative and something they constantly look back at and saying that God that was faithful back then is the same God who's faithful today. And so they would have these feasts and people would travel to Jerusalem, the capital city, which was in Judea, uh, and, and they would travel there and they would live there in these booths and, and, um, and Jesus' brothers are going, after all, they need some entertainment while they're there. So, uh, Jesus, why don't, why don't you go? Look at what he said if I read a little bit further in verse 3. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so his brothers are saying, hey, go take this show on the road. Go show these people who you are, what you can do, so that, um, I don't know what they wanted, right? But I, I think they were trying to put an end to what Jesus was doing, because the Bible says here in the very next verse, in verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. But then this spurred this, kind of conversation that Jesus had with his brothers. And he begins talking about how the world hates him. And and it's actually kind of odd. In fact, you know, at first I'm going, Jesus is being a little dramatic here, right? The world hates you? I mean, come on. Uh, Is he exaggerating? Is he just uh, kind of making a point? But he he begins having these conversations with his brothers about how the the whole world is is hating him. Look at at, um, at verse 6. It says, So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. And so I'm reading this verse this week, and I'm going, what in the world is Jesus talking about that the whole world hates him? He, he's kind of being a little dramatic and, and making this scene about the world being uh, kind of after him, almost like, um, you know, those people that are always uh, conspiracy theorists, like, like, the, like people are like hiding behind the bushes, maybe trying to get him or something like that. I, and I don't know, um, but, but, but when we look further and how this word world is used 
and particularly in the Gospel of John, and particularly by Jesus, what we begin to see is that Jesus isn't using this word world to refer to um, specific individuals who have seen him, learned about him, and made a decision about him. Rather, he's using this word world to, to refer to the posture of creation, that, that creation is um, postured or oriented away from the way and will of God, that, that ultimately all of creation, therefore he can say the world, that all of creation is turned away from the will of God, that all of creation is acting in rebellion to God, that all of creation doesn't seek ultimately to do the things of, of, of God. And so there's some good things happening in our world, and that may be true, but that's not the posture of creation. That ultimately, when we pursue our own uh, devices, when we pursue our own um, ambitions, when we pursue our own direction, that ultimately leads to destruction and death. Um, but there is a way that leads to life, and that way could only be found in Jesus. But the world is turned away from that way. In other words, we can't find our way to eternal life. Like we, we can't work our way to God, right? There's, there's no works that we can do because we're turned towards, towards death and, and destruction. And when Jesus says the whole world hates me, he's saying that the world's ways are in opposition to me. And, and this, this teaching right here helps us to uh, make sense of some of the experiences um, that we have in, in life, um, experiences that, that cause pain and hardship. In fact, the question of, like, why does evil exist or why does pain exist? Evil and pain exist because the world is oriented in a way that's not oriented towards and it's not postured towards the creator of life. And so when we see things like, like, um, like when we see things like death and violence, um, that's because of the posture of this, this world is oriented away from, from God, not because God's the author of death and violence, but because the world isn't oriented towards God. Or when we see things like broken relationships and we can say, well, I, I felt like I did everything right, and that's because this world is oriented or postured away from God. And, and it, it doesn't matter how much effort we put into it because the world, the ways of the world are ultimately leading to destruction and brokenness and death and hardship. And so when we see these things, in fact, even when we see natural disasters and storms and hardships that take people's lives, it's because this world, all of creation, is postured away from God. And, and, and we're hopelessly turn that way apart from Jesus. And, and that's what John is getting at, and that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, the world hates me. He's saying that the world does not know the ways of the Father. It does not know the ways of God, and Jesus being one sent from the Father to live out the Father's will. He, he's pointing to the fact that creation and this world is not the way God intended it to be, and it's going in opposition to the things of God. And so when he says, the world cannot hate you because it hates me, um, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. When The reason why he's saying the world cannot hate you is because he's talking to his disciples who are a part of the system of this world, who are postured away from the way of God as they pursue their own will and ultimately a destination apart from God. 
And the scriptures show us that we're hopelessly bound that way apart from Jesus. In fact, only Jesus can change the posture of those who are in this world. If you flip back a couple of, of, of chapters, John 3, 16, you might not even have to flip there. But I just want to kind of roll through a few passages of scripture that show us what God has done to this world that was postured in a direction that was not towards God. Listen to what it says in John 3, 16. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the, judge, the, the world might be saved through him, right? For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. What we're seeing is that, um, that those of this world who are oriented away from God are hopelessly bound that way, but salvation is God coming into the world, dying for our sins so that he can offer us this new life in Christ Jesus, and he could turn us around, right? That he could turn the things of of, of this world around one person at a, at a time as we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so salvation is this freedom from this posture that leads to death. And that's the good news for us this morning. The good news is that God, through Jesus Christ, has turned this or is turning this thing around. You know, there's days and times in life where, um, where we're reminded of just how broken this world is. And, and some of the hardships that we face in this world are real and tangible. And no matter how much we try to escape them, they're there with us. And in fact, Mother's Day can sometimes be one of those days that we're reminded of how hard this world can be. While we celebrate mothers and the roles that they play, we also recognize that there are those whose um, feelings towards motherhood is not the way God created it, and intended it to be. And that is hard. And, and it's difficult to be in that place without the hope of a Savior who is turning this thing around. I think there's a very real reason why John 3.16 became such a classic verse that was memorized and quoted. Because as that verse is in our heart, for God so loved the world, this place that was turned away from him, this place that was ultimately destined for destruction and, and, and death, this place that was ultimately directed towards brokenness and broken relationships and hardship and mothers who... Um, who, who um, who weren't living up to the expectation of their community, that there's a God who's turning this thing around, that there's a God who's offering healing and hope, there's a God who's offering peace and joy, there's a God who's making all things new, right, in Jesus Christ, there's a God who's chosen to save this world that was ultimately living in utter hatred towards God of creation, 
that God can say, this world hated me, but I've chosen to save it. And now in me and with me and through me, this place is being made new. And that's the joy of the gospel. In fact, if you look a little bit further in John chapter 15, and I'm kind of jumping all over this morning, but I want you to see something. In John chapter 15, verse 18, listen to what it says. And these are just Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me, right? So this is later after the verse that we're in this morning. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And he's not, again, he's not, um, he's not telling the disciples to throw themselves a pity party because now the world hates them. Um, But in verse 19, listen to what he says. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, um, but I chose you out of the world. But but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this world. Because of this, the world hates you. Sorry. I can't. Y'all know I can't read. Um, (laughs) Good gracious. All right, I'm going to redo that one. Verse 19, but if you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. That's a little bit complicated, though. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all are encouraging me this morning. Um, Good gracious. Um, but, But what he's teaching there, let me just put it in my own words, since I'm can't read, right? Um, but what, what he's teaching us there is that when we choose to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right, um, that, that prior to that, we were hopelessly bound to a way of failure and destruction and death. But when we choose to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we have been chosen by God out of this world. Therefore, we're no longer hopelessly bound to that way. Now, the world itself, those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are still hopelessly bound that way. Um, But he's chosen us out in order that we can go in a new and fresh direction led by God and the Spirit of God in this world. And so now we are going, as Jesus was going, in opposition to the world. And so he's using this word hatred in reference to us because now in Jesus Christ we're in opposition to the world. We are hated by the world. The ways of the world are not our own. Let's look at one more verse in John chapter 17. Here's this passage, and I don't even know... Um, I I don't know exactly where I am. John chapter 17, verse 13. Let's look at what that says. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. This is Jesus praying in John chapter 17. Listen to what it says in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by, in your truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And so Jesus is saying, I've chosen them out of the world to go in a different kind of way. But, but here's the thing. There's this, there's this saying that's, that's become popular. 
uh, in this world but not of this world. And it's mostly based on this passage of Scripture. And sometimes what we take that to mean is that God has chosen us to live in this world but not be of this world. So um, um, maybe not to rub shoulders with certain people and, and who do certain things. And, 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 and to, um, to clean our own lives up and, and not to say certain words or, or even to break certain certain habits that God has chosen us out of this world we're in this world but not of this world we're not doing that sinful kind of stuff and and often that's what that passage is taken to to mean and I don't want to take that away and say that yeah we are to live transformed changed lives but look at what it says right he says I have sent them into this world or I send them into this world if you look back at verse 18 and 19 as you sent me into the world I also have sent them into the world for their sakes. I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. And so he's not just changing us. He's not just calling us to live in this world and not be of the ways of this world. But also to be sent to that world and to live fully in it. And so we understand that this world in opposition to God and the ways of God leads to some of the hardship and struggle and pain. But because of John 3.16, because God so loved this world and has chosen to turn this place around one person at a time, that now we become the answer to the pain in this world. That as we submit to Jesus Christ, our lives are turned around. Our families are being restored. Our relationships are being healed. Our generation is being made whole. Things are becoming different because of the work that God is doing in our lives while we live fully in this world. Not separating ourselves from this world, but living fully in this world so that we can be a light that testifies to the power of God through Christ Jesus as he offers salvation to those who believe. And so when we go back to John chapter 17, we see Jesus saying, um, I am not of this world and the world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. He's calling us to join in with him and take our faith seriously and the transformation he wants to bring through Christ Jesus seriously. He's calling us to join in and be a part of that change so that our ways don't operate according to the ways of this world. And the, I was... I was, I was excited. So, so I was excited about this passage this morning, uh, this week, uh, as I read this passage of scripture, because um, Jesus does something for us in this passage of scripture that I think um, um, that I think is is a helpful guide, if you will. I like things when they're made simple for me, um, because complex things just confuse me a little bit. And what Jesus does in this passage is he does something very simple for us, uh, or, or lays out a plan for us that's simple, and that's. Um, he, he teaches us how to live in this world, uh, discerning the will of God and not being influenced by the ways of this world. Because that's an extremely difficult 
thing to do, right? To live fully in this world. And I think this is one of the reasons why those who um, um, follow Jesus have historically and even today have separated themselves from the world because the influence of the world is great and strong, right? And so our lives could revolve around our church, um, but that doesn't give us opportunities to be light in the world that God is calling us to be, right? Our lives could revolve around our church, right? And we could like huddle in here every day, five days a week. But that doesn't give us opportunities to go out and show how God is making things new through our lives. So what Jesus does is when he calls us to not be of this world, but to live fully into it, he here in John chapter 17 kind of gives us these um, these. Um, Kind of, I'm going to state them as questions, but these ways of thinking that, that help us to discern God's will in this world that's in opposition to God. I, I'm, I think I'm making something more complicated uh, that Jesus was trying to make simple for us. So I'm just going to get to it. To it. Um, there's three questions that I want you to see this morning. Um, three questions that help us to discern God's will. Let me say that clearly and simply. There are, there are three questions that help us to discern God's will. And, and all of us at some point in our life will be in a space where we have a question and, and we're trying to figure out whether this is God's will or not. Um, you know, does God want me to do this? Or does God want me to go there? Or does God want me to, um, you, you name it, right? And, Throughout life, we're always trying to discern God's will. It's one of the things that keeps popping up in our lives. And, and I want you to see this morning three questions that will help you discern God's will that come straight from Jesus in this passage. Um, the first one is, am I doing God's will? Am I doing God's will? Look uh, a little bit further down in this passage in verse 14. Listen to what he says. And, and we got a little bit, a few verses to go, and then we get to the, where he kind of asked that question for us. He says, but when it was now in the midst of the feast, because Jesus ended up going to the feast after telling his brothers, I'm not going, right? He ends up going to this feast in Judea. And so when it was in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. If anyone is willing to do his will. The first question for us is, am I willing to do God's will? Jesus lays that out as a prerequisite prerequisite for knowing God's will, right? If we're ever going to know God's will in this world, we must be willing to do God's will. Notice he doesn't say that you must be actively doing everything that God's wills, but that you must be willing to do his will. He's talking about this matter of the heart that is not holding back on God in any area of our lives, that if we're going to live fully in this world, but know the will of God and not be so influenced by the world, that we reject the will of God when it's in our face, that we must be willing in our heart to do the will of God. That is making a decision that I'm not holding back on God in any area of my life. And you can think about the areas of your life. Maybe it's relationally, right? 
Maybe I'm holding back on God where I'm just not going to go there relationally. I'm just not going to forgive or I'm just not going to love or I'm just not going to do relationally. And maybe that's an area or maybe it's financially where it's like, well, I know the teachings of Scripture and how the Scriptures teach me uh, to live my life financially, but I'm just in a hard place and I don't know that I can trust God fully in this area. So I'm going to trust my, my own way instead of trusting God financially. And maybe that's an area in your life where you're holding back on God, not willing to do his will. But the Bible's showing us that in our lives, we must be willing to do God's will in every area of our lives if we're going to know what God's will is. And so Jesus is saying, be willing to do my will, and then you'll be able to tell what my will is for you to do. And, and this one almost doesn't make logical sense at first. And, and it's not that God's rewarding us for moral superiority, like when we do God's will, God's saying, oh, you've, you've finally got it right. Well, here, here, now understand, clearly, this is my will for you. But rather what he's saying is that uh, a heart that's not fully surrendered to God is not, is not ready nor is it able to discern God's will in this world. As long as we're saying, God, I surrender to you in this area, but not in this one, that we will not be able to discern God's will. So that's the first question I want you to see, that whenever you're in a situation or facing a question and you're wondering whether this is God's will or not, ask yourself that question, am I willing to do God's will in every area of my life? Second one, I want you to see that we can ask, and comes from Jesus here in this passage, is am I committed to glorifying God, right? Am I committed to glorifying God? If we look very, the very next verse, verse 18, listen to what he says. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, um, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him, right? And so what Jesus is showing us that all that God does, and this is hard for us to understand because if somebody else did this, we call them selfish, right? It's hard for me to understand. I won't put that on you guys. But if somebody else did this, we call them selfish. But the Bible teaches us that God is fundamentally after his own glory, right? That God created us for his glory, that he created the world and all that is in it for his glory, that he wanted to make his own name famous, that he wanted to be known for his goodness. He wanted to be known for his kindness. He wanted to be known for his generosity. He wanted to be known for his compassion. He wanted to be known for his greatness and might and strength. He wanted to be known for his omnipotence, right? His knowing all things, his all-powerfulness. He wanted to be known for his creativeness and the things that he did. That God himself wanted to be known, right? He created the world for his own glory. Therefore, all that God wills in this world is for God's own glory. And so if you're ever faced with a question in life and you're wondering, could this be God's will or not? And if you're the only one that stands to benefit from it, then it's probably not God's will because God's will is always about God's own glory. And this is a point of transformation for us because in this world, we're constantly being sucked into seeking our own motives, our own satisfaction, our own pleasure, our own joy, our own happiness, our own provision, our own uh, abundance, right? We, we seek those things um, to the detriment of God's glory 
in us and through us. And so we always have to ask this question, am I committed, and I, and I think this goes to, it becomes a prayer as well, am I committed to glorifying God? God, help me to live my life for your glory. All right, the third question I want us to see is, uh, am I judging according um, to God's standard of righteousness? So the first one is, am I committed to doing God's will? Second, am I committed to glorifying God? Am I living for God's glory? Is that the thing I desire more than anything else? And the third one, am I judging according to God's righteous standard? If you look down in verse 24, uh, last uh, verse that we read this morning, do not judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Appearances, appearances, what we see, what we see, seeing is a sense. Um, he's saying don't judge according to your senses, because your senses will deceive you. This just feels right. It must be of God. This just looks right. It must be of God. Tradition tells me that this is right. It must be on, of God. Right? There are so many ways that our senses can deceive us. When the scriptures are challenging us to draw back to the God who's revealed in the scriptures. And Jesus himself says, don't judge according to appearance. Don't judge according to even what you've been taught to be right or wrong by those who are of this world, but use God's righteous standard as the standard for judgment. And again, this goes back to the fact that we must be students of God's word because it's so easy for us to be deceived in this world by what feels right, smells right, looks right, ought to be right, what we have decided God's plans should be for our lives. And the scriptures are challenging us that the only thing that is right is God and God alone. And we use him and his word as the righteous standard for judgment. Notice that this passage isn't telling us not to judge, that we aren't to judge, because... Um, all those passages that teach us against um, um, being judgmental or judgmentalism, this ideal of the fact that we are judging people and condemning them, he's not, he's not telling us to do that, but he's telling us to live our lives with our eyes wide open so that we're able to recognize that there is a right, there is a wrong, and for us to choose the right when we see it. You see, this passage helps us to live in this world and not be of this world, to live in this world and not be influenced by the ways of this world, for us to live lives so that we're using this almost as a, a, um, a rubric, if you will, right, that we're saying, hey, am I committed to doing God's will along this journey, whether it's the journey of parenthood or the journey as a student or the journey as an adult or the journey as a teen, right? Am I, am I committed to doing God's will so that I can know God's will along this journey of life? Am I com uh, committed to glorifying God? Is God's glory the thing I desire more than anything else? 
then am I, am I judging according to God's righteous standing so that I might be a part of God's work in this world of turning this thing around? Let's pray. God, we give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to uh, study this scripture and to, um, yeah, to find joy in the fact that there's a God who hasn't forgotten about this world. That there's a God who hasn't abandoned creation. There's a God who hasn't left this place to go its own way. But there's a God who's chosen to save us. Sanctify, transform us. And set us on a new path. God, we're thankful for that new path that we have. And for the knowledge that we don't have to repeat some of the patterns and behaviors and habits of the past. For there's one who's broken the chains holding us to that past, to those patterns, to those habits. There's one who's set us free so that we can live a new life in Christ Jesus. And thank you for teaching us how to live that new life and to discern your will while we live in this world so that we won't be influenced by this world, but we'll be led by you and your word. Help us to live intentional lives that we might see your will, know it, then find the boldness and strength to do it. It's in your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.